You're listening to episode 152 of the Writing Life podcast from the National Centre for Writing, a weekly podcast for anyone who writes. I'm Simon Jones. And I'm Steph McKenna. And it is the 25th of June 2021 here in Norwich. And coming up on the show today, we have a lovely chat with Jen Campbell. But before we get to that, Steph, you've been involved in the International Literature Showcase this week. I have, yes. So I've had the great privilege, along with some of our other colleagues, of taking part in the International Literature Showcase Symposium with 50 literature professionals from across the world. And we've been on Zoom. We've been on Zoom all week, having lots of conversations about the industry, sort of sharing best practice and talking about sort of lessons learned and challenges and the way that we want to improve our sector going forward. So it's been absolutely fascinating and really lovely to meet people as well, even though it couldn't be in person, sadly, this time. But um, just really, really fantastic, energizing conversations. Great stuff. Yes. No, glad to hear you've solved all the problems. Oh, yes. Yeah. Literature is solved. And yeah, for anyone who couldn't come along to the symposium itself, we still have lots and lots of really excellent free articles and videos you can check out, including last night, Kai Miller's big reveal of his new selection of writers. Yes, he's selected 10 emerging writers who are working in the UK at the moment. Um, And it's a, a very varied and fascinating list of brilliant people. Yeah, and this adds to the 40 writers we already had, courtesy of Elif Shafak, Val McDermott, Jackie Kay, and Owen Shears. So it's a really amazing collection of people. If you're looking for the new voices to read, then do check it out. You can go over to nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk forward slash ILS to find it. And if you thought this week was busy, then next week is even more exciting because we are revealing the winners of the Early Career Awards, of which there are three. Yes, the excitement never ends, Simon. It's been quite a summer for us already. And as you mentioned, next Thursday, the 1st of July, throughout the day, we'll be announcing the winners. So this will be the UEA New Forms Award and Laura Kinsella Fellowship, which we've mentioned before. They're going to be announced on Twitter throughout the day. So make sure you're following us on Twitter at Writers' Centre so you can see those announcements as they happen. And then at six o'clock in the evening, we will be announcing on YouTube the winner of the Desmond Elliott Prize 2021. This has been selected by a panel of judges as the year's best first novel from across the UK and Ireland. So we've got three shortlisted novels in the running for the prize. They are The Manning Tree Witches by A.K. Blakemore, Little Scratch by Rebecca Watson and The Liar's Dictionary by Ellie Williams. So they're all in the running to win the £10,000 prize. Join us at 6pm on YouTube. You can register in advance on the website as well. We'll send a streaming link direct to your inbox. And let's celebrate together. Yeah, I can't wait. And also, if you register in advance for the event on our website, as mentioned, we'll also send you a link to our Desmond Elliott Prize after party, which will be over on the Savage Reads YouTube channel. So it's being hosted by Simon Savage, who was one of the judges this year. And he's a a very skilled and passionate booktuber. Yes, one of the best Simons. One of the the second best Simon, I would say. Possibly. I mean, I, I couldn't possibly comment. And he'll be joined by the winner who will have just been revealed and they'll be having a chat about the success of that first novel. There'll be lots of bookish conversation as well and you can join in live with us on the YouTube chat. And running alongside the awards, we also have a lovely competition going, don't we, Steph? 
Yes, uh, to celebrate this upcoming announcement of this year's Desmond Elliott Prize winner and to also celebrate Independent Bookshop Week, which is running between the 19th and the 26th of June, we're giving away a bundle of all 10 Desmond Elliott Prize 2021 long-listed books. So to enter this prize, you need to join us on Twitter or Instagram, or you can enter on both if you're feeling lucky. And we want you to follow our account, retweet the post about the competition, which you'll find on our pages. And in the comments, tell us who your favorite independent bookshop is and why. And as a bonus, when the winner is selected, we'll also send the nominated bookshop a cash prize of £500. So yeah, very exciting for the winner and very exciting for bookshops as well. Yay, bookshops. Oh, and talking of bookshops, I heard the news just at the weekend that one of our local knowledge Bookshops, Book Bugs and Dragon Tales made it onto a list in the Guardian newspaper of some of the best bookshops in the country. So that was lovely to see. Absolutely wonderful. It is a lovely, lovely bookshop, especially for young people. It's absolutely beautiful inside, isn't it? Yeah, it's like a little cave of books to explore. It's brilliant. So on this week's episode, you are talking to Jen Campbell. Tell us a little bit about how this came together. Yes. So um, Jen, who is uh, an extremely busy person, so she's a writer of poetry, short stories, nonfiction and children's books. She's got a podcast. She's got a very popular YouTube channel. She runs workshops and editorial services, just about everything you can think of. Jen joined us earlier in the year and she ran a workshop for us on how to brand yourself as a writer. It was a really fascinating workshop. I really enjoyed taking part in it and As a result, I thought it would be really great to have Jen on the podcast to talk a bit more about social media and how she handles using multiple social media platforms, how she markets herself, because as I mentioned, she's she's working across a range of forms and genres. So that can be a difficult thing to grapple with sometimes. She talks about how to stay authentic and stay true to yourself. And we also spent a bit of time talking about disability and labels and communities too. So a very fruitful, very enjoyable chat. I found it a really interesting chat to listen to while I was putting this one together because I'm someone who tends to get overexcited about different online platforms for writing and for publishing your work and a lot of Jen's advice on you know finding the right places for what you're doing and kind of you know not not trying to do everything but pinpointing what makes sense for the kind of person you are and the kind of work you're doing is is yeah really really useful practical advice there Mm, yeah, it's, it's definitely not a one size fits all thing, is it? And I think also uh, back back when we were doing the workshop, there were a few workshop attendees who uh, didn't feel particularly confident with social media. And I think they were worried that in order to promote themselves as a writer online, they needed to be very savvy across all of these platforms. And that's not the case at all. You know, if you want to if you want to try and use the Internet and use online communities to kind of spread the word about your writing, um, it, it's not a, a matter of having to become a mastermind at all of it it's a matter of picking the platform that's best for you yeah and Jen talks a lot about yeah creating that audience and also kind of how the different platforms have their own kind of cultures and styles Mm. and you know how particularly how she's kind of dealt with or or bypassed some of the the less pleasant aspects of of being Mm. online and and having a platform so yeah packed full of really good tips So let's hand over to a past to me having a chat with Jen Campbell. Jen, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. Welcome to the Writing Life podcast. How are things today? That's okay. I'm very happy to be here. Things are are good. It's very sunny outside. The birds are quite loud. So 
And as I said to you before we started recording, I'm wearing my springtime dungarees. So I was going to bring up, (laughs) I was going to bring up the colourful springtime outfit. I'm loving the dungarees. Yeah, thank you. Um, Yeah, very comfortable. Uh, Lucy Nyak is a company that uh, I use a lot of dungarees and they have ruined all other clothes for me now because everything else is just uncomfortable. It's got a waistline, (sighs) don't want it don't want it <laughs> no no I feel like lockdown has destroyed my my usual outfits as well because I'm so used to wearing joggers in the house now I don't know how I'm ever going to go back to wearing trousers no I just want to dress like a toddler for the rest of my life and I think that was my my goal before the pandemic so I'm just using that as an excuse <laughs> I love it let's do it let's all commit to dungarees yes, and uh comfy things going forward yeah So looking over your career to date, you've achieved so much and you've built a really impressive following across a lot of different channels. So first off, before uh, I ask you a few more questions about your journey as a writer, could you tell us a bit about yourself for any listeners who are new to your work? Um, I would panic when I ask this question. Sorry. No, 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 it's fine. It's like that question when people say, what's your favourite book? And you immediately forget everything you've ever read. When people ask me this question, I'm like, sorry, who am I? Who am I? <laughs> who what am I, I, <laughs> um, I would say that I I do books. That is, And I do books in various different forms. So I write books. That's the primary one. So I write for adults and for children. I've written 10 books across nonfiction, poetry, short stories, picture books. And I also review books in various forms on the radio, in press, and also on uh, my YouTube channel, so in video form too. So formally and informally. And I also talk a lot about the history of fairy tales, the representation of disagreement and disability. That's kind of my jam as a whole. Yeah. And as you say, you're a writer of so many different uh, genres, I guess. You've done poetry and short stories, nonfiction, children's books, uh, and you are very much a presence within the book community. So you have a podcast, a YouTube channel, you run workshops, you offer editorial services, pretty much. You really are the embodiment of a book person. Uh, There's so much I want to cover when speaking to you, actually. I wasn't sure where to even begin. So I I will keep it simple and ask, where did you begin? You were, I think you were a bookseller for quite a few years. Is that where your journey towards being a writer began? No, I I mean, yes, I was a bookseller, but I would say it began (laughs) way before that. So I have always wanted to be a writer. It's interesting when I, because I interview authors too, and there's often people who've always wanted to write, and then there's some who come to Mm. it much later in life. Um, yeah. And I always find it fascinating, like those, those differences. So yeah, I wanted to do it since I was, since I was tiny and that was a little bit of a a rebellious act on my part because I was born without essentially without fingers and doctors had to craft them for me um I have something mm. called ectodactyly which is part of a, a larger syndrome and you know managing expectations doctors were like we don't we you know children adapt children are so adaptable it's incredible not to call myself mm. incredible but you know maybe um <laughs> you it's hard to imagine what somebody who has a different ability to you can do I think especially doctors they want to manage parents expectations so they didn't know what I was going to be able to do uh, mm. dexterously if that's even a word um, so the act of writing was such a powerful thing for me um, I'd fallen in love fallen in love with stories before that particularly in hospital because I was in hospital so much listening mm. to audiobooks did you ever get this where you could buy a set with a book and a cassette tape 
Yes. 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 Okay. I was starting to I was like, wait, do you remember this? How old are we? Are we just yeah, no, I, I do. Okay, good. I absolutely do remember that. That was lovely. It was lovely. And my mum would never let me listen to the cassette tape until I'd read the book. Ah. Uh, that was that was her thing. Kind of like, you know, don't go see the film before you've read the book, which is not something yes. I stick to myself these days so much. But yeah, so I would read the book and sometimes prop that up on a, a wooden shelf in front of me if I couldn't hold the book, turn the pages, and then I would get to listen to the audiobook. So I spent a lot of my childhood listening and re-listening to audiobooks, creating extra, I guess it would be fan fiction in my head of what yeah. the characters would be doing elsewhere. So I'd always wanted to write, storytelling was really important to me, and then the physical act of writing I found really powerful. Um, my parents bought me a, team, a, a, a typewriter when I was 10, I think. But one of those old ones that you can jam your fingers between the keys, you know. Yeah. Uh, and they're so loud. I loved it so much. Um, so, yeah, I've written since I was small. And I had my first poem published when I was 11 in uh, Times Educational Supplement. Um, wow. And then kind of took a break, not from writing. I was still writing, but it was really angsty emo poetry because I was then a teenager. Oh. It was all, you know lyrics like just there's a there's a place for that but it was very internalized not for the outside world ridiculous um and then yes when I started uni I decided I would become a bookseller because I was spending some money in bookshops so I thought it would be prudent to be paid to be there um so I learned a lot about the publishing industry as a bookseller while still writing and trying to work out mm. what I wanted to write professionally is there a genre of writing now that you gravitate towards more are you allowed to have a favorite do you have a favorite I think my agent would like me to have a favorite yeah <laughs> so Jen could you pick one please just pick one please pick one. um no it changes all the time and it, mm. it seems to happen with a bit of rotation um I'm not sure if it's to do with attention span I'm not really sure poetry is definitely the thing that I've written the longest and the thing that I go back to the most and I would right. say that that genre creeps into my short stories and my picture books. My picture books really are all long poems. So poetry is probably the thing that is embedded in me the most. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And you mentioned that actually your experience as a bookseller was a really good way to kind of get to know the publishing industry and understand that a bit more, which I'm sure lots of, uh, yeah, lots of other booksellers would say that too and I've met quite a few people who are involved in the industry in lots of ways and they often began their career as a bookseller um has your experience of sort of publication been very different depending on which type of writing you've been doing so for example was it easier to find a publisher for sort of non-fiction than poetry or have they been very different experiences each time that's an interesting question and and I would say it's true because you do have to market yourself in different ways depending on what you're mm. writing. I wouldn't say that's even a really conscious thing that I do, but I think just whenever mm. you're talking about different forms, just like whenever you're talking to different people, you present yourself in a slightly different way. And there are yeah. different areas of the publishing industry that have different, I'm using air quotes, you can't see, but rules <laughs> that you that you have to adhere to at least loosely. Um, and work is discovered in different ways. So. The first book of mine to be published was a nonfiction book. And it was not the kind of nonfiction book I thought I would ever write. I just, I don't know, I think we all have visions 
of what our first book is going to be, just like some mm. people have visions of what their wedding is going to be. Um, and this was not it. Um, so I started writing a blog. It was 2009. Everyone had a blog. I, like, I should have a blog. Okay, I'll have a blog. I have nothing to say, but I'm going to set up a blog. <laughs> and I was talking about books I was reading, but also talking about strange encounters I'd had in the bookshop. Um, because people say ridiculous things in bookshops hilarious I love it mm. you know do you have this book it's blue and that's the end of the conversation and they just look at you like you must know and it's flattering as though you just have all the knowledge but sadly I mm. didn't have all the knowledge um so there were lots of occasions like that someone told me they ate every good book that they read they cook it into pies and they eat what I know no I know um kids <sighs> amazing like this young girl pointed to a bookcase and she said to me can you get to Narnia through there and I said no sorry it doesn't work for getting to Narnia and she said that's okay our wardrobe at home doesn't work for getting to Narnia either dad says it's because mum bought it at Ikea and I just love <laughs> the idea that the Swedes are deliberately making non-magical furniture yeah no. so I've done a series of blog posts about weird things stuff in the same bookshops and they went viral um, Neil Gaiman was tweeting about them, Stephen King, like bookshelves wow. everywhere were saying, us too, this happened to us. And mm. I was glad because I was worried it was just me, you know. Um, and yeah, it, it, one of those things that you can't plan and you can't work out why it happened or whatever, but it went viral. And I just got an agent for my short fiction. I think he was hoping I would also then write novels, you know, that tend mm. to be how agents think. And I got a call at the bookshop from an editor who worked at Constable and Robinson saying, I love your posts about bookshops. Have you ever thought about turning that into a book? And I hadn't. And I was kind of panicking. I was like, is this, is this selling out? Is this? Yeah. Because, you know, I was writing for serious poetry and stuff. And then I was asked to write a humor book. And I think there's, you know, the program has decided to see that as two not compatible things. Yes, so yeah. I can't be serious if I'm also going to be funny, um, mm -hmm. which is ridiculous because, of course, you can. So um, I had a word with myself and thought, well, I love being funny too. So, yes, yeah, okay, let's do that. Um, so I forwarded him to my agent. We discussed the book deal. And I ended up writing these books about the weird things that people said in bookshops and then followed that slightly redemptively with a book about the wonderfulness of bookshops and booksellers all around the world, which was slightly more serious, but not not that much more serious. Um, so that was a happy accident, a combination of lots of things, as well as hard work. Because I was writing, it was on the blog, it was there. Mm -hmm. It was just not something I'd, I'd really thought purposefully about. Whereas, yes, all of my other books definitely were supposed to be books. And I worked so hard to place them properly. So with poetry, you need to place so many about a third to half of your poems that are in a book in journals and competitions before publishers okay. will look at it um, yeah, sure. and you publish a chat book which is about 25 poems as uh, uh, an intermediate step between publishing in journals the full-length book so there are all mm. these steps and I adhere to all of those completely separately to my career as a, a non-fiction writer which was mm -hmm. quite grounding actually because the non-fiction was selling really well it was a Sunday Times bestseller and then I was going home and going back to submitting to, to journals and getting all the rejections that you know any writer would get mm -hmm. and rejection doesn't go away as you become 
published, it may get slightly less. But I like that about the industry too. So yes, some were accidental, some very purposeful. And the way that books come about in general is often quite different. So with the children's picture books, that's much more a collaborative process between me and Katie Harnett, who illustrates my uh, children's mm. picture books, which is different again. I really enjoy the variety of that. I find it very stimulating. Mm. Yeah, that's brilliant. That is brilliant. And this sort of nicely segues because I attended your workshop with National Centre for Writing last month. You kindly hosted a workshop for some writers and it was a really, really useful overview of how to sort of develop an online presence as a writer, how to market yourself and how to work across a variety of different genres. And um, nowadays it feels like it's increasingly important for writers to be able to promote themselves and have an online presence, even if they have a traditional publishing house behind them and you were mentioning that your agent would probably be really pleased if you could stick to one type of writing does this present any difficulties when you're trying to market yourself I think it can do and I think it does depend also on who you're speaking with and success Mm. in one area doesn't translate into into another area so as I said when submitting to poetry poetry journals or poetry presses, presses wouldn't care that I was successful writing nonfiction because those audiences aren't going to meet each other. Some of them may, like a few people Mm. that they may, but I would say a lot of people who buy the weird things from the same bookshop books don't give a damn about who I am. Mm. They're just like, oh, that's funny. They'll pick it up in a bookshop. It might be by the till. They're not going to go, oh, I wonder if she's written poetry. Let me go and read that. (laughs) That's just not how it works. So there's not a lot of cross-pollination. So I can see mm. why my uh, long-suffering agent, Charlie, <laughs> said, you know, can we focus on one thing? He doesn't say that so seriously anymore. It was just in the beginning when I think lots of people think I can do whatever. And I desperately want people to believe they can do whatever. Mm. But he just needed to be that grounding character saying, yeah, maybe, but let's be realistic. Also, ages too. So my children's books are for ages three to seven my short story collection for adults is not suitable for that age group so again there's mm. no crossover there so I think as long as you're aware of that it's not a problem at all mm. um I don't really know how to explain it more than that I think it, it does create more work for yourself I suppose is what I'm saying you can't just focus on this one group of people and think how can I grow that readership it, mm. it's like I have a greenhouse instead of watering lots yeah. of plots and just hoping that they'll they'll grow a bit and come back next year. I guess you're starting from almost starting from scratch when you're yeah starting yeah, exactly. a new area of writing because you are getting to know your audience or getting to know you know the the publisher or anything from from the very beginning. You just can't, you can't always take what you've learned in other areas exactly and a sort of scattergun approach across everything exactly. And as you said, with publishers too. So I have to start. Or, or continue different relationships with lots of different people. So I have different editors for each genre, different marketing teams. So all of that is, uh, it can be a little bit overwhelming. I did once mm. have a year where I had three books out, and don't do that. I would recommend yeah. doing that, but if you spread them out, <laughs> that's quite tiring. Because so it, well, it also felt like, you know, at school when teachers say, okay, I know you've got other homework, but this one is the most important. Yes, uh, what pick a favourite. is exactly alike. They're like, I know you have other books, but this one is the most important. And I'm thinking, no, they're all, mm. they're all important. They're all my children. Yes, exactly. And something I would also say to people, whilst I encourage 
using social media to reach out to potential readers, there has to be an underlying reason why you're doing it aside from that. So I have a YouTube mm. channel where I talk about other people's books. I review books. I also bake, which is a cliche everyone's fallen into during lockdown, baking videos. And I do that because it's now part of my job because I've grown my following. So it, it's part of my job. And it does intersect slightly with my writing in the sense that when I have a new book, I can say to the 60,000 people watching, hi, I have a new book. But that doesn't mean they're going to go buy it. And that's not the price. Mm. That's not, I was going to say, the primary reason either, but any of the high up reasons of me having that channel at all. And I see a lot of authors asking me whether they should start a YouTube channel to talk about books because they want to sell their own books. And to that, I say no. If you want to start a channel because you enjoy talking about books, please do it. It is so much fun. And the primary reason I started my channel was because at that point, six, seven years ago, I was working in an antiquarian bookshop, so selling old books. Mm. And I miss talking about new releases. So that's why I started my channel. If you love that, please do it. But if you want to try and do it in a more calculated, I want to sell books kind of way, it's not going to work. People don't yeah. like being sold stuff. Uh, and I do not blame them because I would hate it too. Yeah, I was I was going to ask you about this next, actually, yeah. because I'm sure there are some people out there listening who um, are a writer and they are in the very early stages of thinking about whether they yeah, want to have a sort of an online presence as a writer and they may not be as comfortable with social media or some of the digital platforms. And I imagine, yeah, as you say, your some of your first advice would be don't try to sign up to everything. Pick a channel that works best for you. Absolutely. Uh, and as we discussed in that the workshop you were mentioning before, mm. that's what I would advise people is pick platforms that um, appeal to your strengths as a person. So mm. if you're someone who likes to be funny um, in quite a short space, in few words, then Twitter is the place for you. Or if your nonfiction book is about news or spreading like the word about articles and stuff, Twitter is a great place for that. It's very uh data heavy but also opinion heavy place um that would be yes. the place where i would recommend that you go to if you are if i'm trying to think of examples but this is a very generic one if you had an art book of some kind something that was very visual then instagram would be the place for you because mm. it's about pictures or even if it's not um an art book but a non-fiction book about nature or anything that you think you could relate back to your book in not a very heavy-handed way uh, Instagram would be a good place to go um, a podcast and YouTube channels I don't think you should set up for book promotion at all no. set them up if you have an idea for a podcast or a YouTube channel but not as just mm. promotional material and Facebook is not something I, I use as much anymore for promotional stuff but um, if your work is about parenting family life I think Facebook is definitely the place that you need to be I would recommend having Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, even if you're not using all of those platforms, just so that if people search for you, they can find you. And then from mm -hmm. there, you've got your other platforms linked just so that everything kind of, you know, meshes together very well. And I would also use the nine to one rule for promotion if we're talking about tweets, even less than that if possible. So nine tweets about whatever and interacting with mm. other people to one tweet that's about your book or something relating to your book don't just at random strangers with links to <laughs> your text which also seem to do quite a bit 
Um, yeah. But it depends where we're talking about with writing careers, like what stages people are at. Mm. If you're looking to pitch to agents, then you can uh, set up those platforms in advance. But if you've already got a book deal and the book is happening, then mm. your, your publisher should help you with that. I was given... Um, a pamphlet of a, a folder full of stuff of the do's and don'ts of social media from mm. my editor at Hachette. I mean, she did say you, you don't need this because it was at this point I think it was my seventh or eighth book or something but she said this is our policy we give it to everybody so mm. your publisher should have information that they can give to you about how you should behave online <laughs> if um, being online is not something that you're particularly used to and I think that's very important so ask for help from them. That's really useful. And as you say, I guess, depending on the platform, some things like setting up a, a, a YouTube channel or a, a podcast, as you mentioned, are so time consuming and very content heavy. So they're not things that you want to sort of step into to lightly because they, they do take a while to sort of um, curate and to edit and to, you know, really get that quality across. Uh, social media platforms, if you're a writer, are quite useful, as you say, sort of maybe slightly more light touches and you can write a tweet quite quickly, get it out in the world quite quickly as well. And I guess if people are not intimidated, but if they, you know, if if they quite like to set up a, a Twitter account because they quite like to get involved and chat to other writers and make links and connections and things, you can do that without having to be on it all the time, can't you? Oh, absolutely. Um, you can use the schedule function as well on Twitter, which is now on the website as opposed to just on the external things like TweetDeck. You can schedule tweets throughout the week I would always recommend coming back on because I think the engagement and replying to what people say to what you've said is actually arguably the most important part but you can compartmentalize the time that you spend online and I would even recommend doing that um, because we all know what it's like to scroll for ages it's just it's you know some of it's productive and some of it is not so if you can save yourself yes do schedules and stuff um, and having said that, I wouldn't recommend set up to set up a, a YouTube, a booktube channel, as we call it, which is the area of YouTube where we talk about books, mm. um, if that's not your jam. I would recommend engaging with that community, though, and understanding it, mm. because it's such a great publicity tool for you as a writer if you don't have your own channel, because YouTubers, mm. booktubers review books. And they reach thousands, tens of thousands of readers with their recommendations. So that's definitely something that you should be aware of. Um, I would recommend compiling a list of booktubers who you think would enjoy the book that you've written if you've got a book deal, mm. um, who review similar things in that genre. And then I would pass that list on to your publicist and ask them to contact booktubers with, a, with AI sheets, with the advanced information sheets, press releases, it's a much better way of doing it rather than authors getting in touch with booktubers themselves because that's a little bit awkward. Um, but yeah, you can definitely help your publicist out by researching the stuff that, that you can. That's what I tend to do as an author, researching all the social media stuff and then I leave all the traditional media stuff and journalists up to them because they have those contacts and I don't. Do you, do you have any sort of particular social media platforms that you like using personally? Um, for your writing or as a writer? I don't have any personal profiles apart from a mm. Facebook one, which I, I don't use, which I used to use, mm. but I haven't used in years. So any activity that I do online is on a public account. But Twitter is something I fell out of love with a little bit. 
it's so fast-paced yeah. and I think you need to be on it quite a lot to benefit from the engagement but then you're on it a lot and that's something that I don't enjoy so I sometimes cross-post things to Twitter the organic content I will make on Instagram and YouTube they're the two places where you can find me the most um, and I find, I don't know if it's because it's a visual format, it might be, I feel like places where people can see you, and especially with video, can hear your tone, it means that it's a friendlier place. Things don't get misunderstood, which they so can on Twitter, because you have a very short word count to fulfill, and people can't hear your tone of voice. So when people can see you and they can remember that they're speaking to a person, yeah. uh, it often creates a friendlier community. And I think that's why I like Instagram and YouTube so much, especially navigating the online world as a disabled person, as someone with disfigurement. People aren't always very nice. So it's, it's nice to be in the nicer places. How do you feel about sort of mixing, I say mixing writing life and your personal life? I mean, I imagine they are, you know, obviously very interlinked. But do you, you say you don't have any, you don't have personal uh, social media accounts. So it's not like you've set up a firm boundary between this is my personal account and this is my air quotes writer account. But do you, how do you feel about mixing those two things? Are you happy for them to kind of overlap? Do you talk about your... I imagine you probably do talk about quite personal things on your YouTube channel as well as sort of talking about writing. And Yeah, I do. And I completely understand people who do have those things separate, who have a private like, Twitter account, Instagram account, where they post things that they only want their friends to see. I absolutely mm. understand that. I'm not sure why I don't mind. Um, it, it's probably something to do with my age, I think, just because mm. I grew up being I think I'm just quite an open person in general and and I feel like I have had to be because growing up within the hospital so much I feel like I've had to explain mm. myself quite a lot to people which is not necessarily something mm. that's fair but I think that if you look different people are very okay with asking what's wrong with you what happened to you and it, you kind of break down those barriers quite quickly sometimes that can mm. be in a not very nice way and sometimes that can be in a lovely you know, let's get personal quickly kind of way. I saw a meme the other day that said, um, after this pandemic is over, touch all the wood, and, and we're seeing people again. I don't want to have any small talk. I want to get straight to this. So why aren't you being the best version of yourself that you can be? Just getting straight to those conversations. I think big life events make people do that. And I think I've had to do that from quite a young age because of that. So that may be one of the reasons I don't mind Plus my age, I grew up with the internet being a thing. I was on forums so much as a teenager um, mm-hmm. and sharing a lot of things. Perhaps not wisely, I don't know, but it worked out okay. <laughs> don't try this at home, I'm not sure. Um, and I think so much of YouTube in particular, the way to, which sounds calculated, but the way to succeed, I think when I say that, I mean the way to enjoy the platform as much and get the mm-hmm. most out of it as possible is to be yourself. And to mm. talk about things that you want to talk about. Yes, set boundaries. And I definitely do have some, but those are maybe further back than, than other people's. I think it's a very individual choice. Think about what suits you best as an individual. And I what think. you're comfortable with, because it's one thing talking about it. Um, and this is something I have learned and had to think about more. It's one thing being vulnerable and talking about things. 
but then the conversation comes back to you because then people yeah. yeah so if you can deal with the it coming back to you bit then then that's okay it took me a while to adjust to that yeah yeah you're kind of putting yourself out there in quite a, a vulnerable way aren't you but that's yeah and it's easy to forget that when you're filming at home because it's just you and your camera and no one else is there but then there are other people there later yeah it's quite easy for people who are watching or listening or reading to forget as well that you are an actual person. And as you say, maybe YouTube's good for that, better than some of the social media like Twitter, because you're, you are actually faced with a person talking and you remember that this is personal experience and not, I don't know, a robot firing off a line exactly into a vacuum. <laughs> exactly. Um, and I would also say that's something to be mindful of as a writer, if you don't have platforms, but say you're doing something, a podcast like this, because <laughs> um, you can sink into that, oh, I'm chatting with a friend, um, which mm. which is very nice, but you have to remember other people are going to gonna hear it. So yeah. I am a very open person, so I don't mind. But if, if you're not, then that's something to bear in mind for interviews too. I imagine that the negative sides to being online and having a presence online like this are quite small. The positives, the positive reaction, hopefully far outweighs the negative reactions. Yes, I think the negative stuff is primarily about those big topic videos that attract people mm. who aren't subscribed to my channel. Um, yeah. The nature of YouTube, if you're not doing clickbaity content and you're just trying to grow your audience slowly, mm. um, which is what I've done and, and definitely something that I'm glad I did that way. I have friends whose channel grew you know, hundreds of thousands in the space of a couple of months. And then you get the wow. people who don't care about you. Like they're here because of one specific thing that that you did. They don't have the context for who you are. And that can get quite nasty. But if you're growing following slowly, I think, yes, it is a very positive place um, and, and a very intimate place. I really, that sounds like a strange thing to say because it is a platform for people, other people that I don't see. But it is a really... A really lovely thing to do I love it and doing YouTube has also meant that I could set up a Patreon account which is essentially mm. a tipping platform that lots of content creators use for podcasts or for YouTube channels mm. where all of the content on my YouTube channel is free but if anyone would like to tip a dollar a month to contribute towards my time that I spend making videos editing videos captioning videos they can do and then you get an extra pocket of people, which really does feel mm. like an intimate community. And, and I love that. I remember reading The Art of Asking by Amanda Palmer, which is a mm. wonderful book, which she wrote. Oh my, I don't even want to think about how long ago it was. It was probably much yeah, longer was, ago than I remember. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let's, let's not think about that. But she has <laughs> created an album off the back of Kickstarter, and it was the largest Kickstarter for anything like that ever, I think. And this was before Patreon existed. So Kickstarter is a place where you can pre-fund a project. And she realized she could use that to release her music instead of record companies mm. who had been very, just didn't have her best interest at heart before. You know, they told her if she ever got pregnant, then they wouldn't, you know, support her music because she would have to be mm. off for a while. Just very cutthroat industry. And she mm. realized, well, I can transfer my stuff over here and people who do care about me and my work and not because of capitalism, can support me and we can grow this 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 online family. So I, I really love that mindset. And she then went on to use Patreon and, and has a very successful one. And that uh, encouraged me to think about setting up my own. And I love that mix of using 
Patreon as a, a means to fund my online creative stuff, but then still doing traditional publishing and publishing my books old school. You know, a- again, maybe you would think those wouldn't be compatible. You know, like the humor and the, and and the poetry, but and this the online community, which is almost self sufficient, and the and the traditional. But I think mix and match definitely works. Mm. I love Patreon actually. I love that as a as a someone who's sort of the consumer and a fan yeah. of things. I love that feeling of financial like directly financially supporting someone I really admire. Yeah. I just I don't know. It just fit I mean, obviously I, I go out and buy their books and their content as well, but um with things like podcasts that aren't, you know, are very time consuming and quite in, you know, intensive to put together, but you know, you're not immediately getting any financial return for it. I just really love being able to to give some financial re- support direct to that artist and then yeah often getting content back as well which is a, a big plus yeah so patreon often has as you said extra content little um behind the scenes stuff um and i suppose actually i'm saying mixing online things with old school traditional publishing but patreon mm-hmm. it's, it's an old school thing right because yeah. used to have patreon that was how they wrote that was how they got yeah. done because they had someone who funded what they were doing and liked it so, yeah, it's, it's harking back to that, too. There's just something very respectful about it. And I love it, as you said, from a consumer point of view. I mm. bought Amanda Palmer on there. Um, Fran Nerd, who's this amazing illustrator. Holly Exley, mm. who's also an illustrator. And it's just lovely knowing that they get to then focus on more of the things that they really want to focus on. And they don't have yeah. to worry about creating something for a brand or, as we were saying, clickbait content just to get views. And if if someone was thinking of starting a YouTube channel, for example, and to talk about books and maybe to talk about writing, um, not just their writing, but, you know, sort of uh, the writing journey and tips and things like that. Um, you can obviously see how many people are engaging on that kind of platform. Is it? I imagine it could be quite easy to get disheartened at the beginning because growth can take a while, can't it? These sort of things, you don't build up a following on any kind of digital platform overnight. It's something that you have to work at quite slowly. Was that the case for you? I think there are pros and cons for that because I think at the beginning, mm. I'd watched a lot of other people's booktube channels. So I was familiar mm. with the setup. Um, I did lots of jump cuts at the beginning because I thought that was cool. Mm. Um, and yes, no one is watching at the beginning, which is sad. Yeah. <laughs> it's also a plus. No one is watching at the beginning. It's amazing. No one's there. No one, no one cares. So it gives you kind of that learning space mm. to get better mm. at it before people are paying attention. I think maybe that space has, has shortened a little bit simply because people are more okay with online world, with YouTube, people come in with new videos that look almost professional now. And I find that slightly Mm. intimidating. But uh, I think so long as you've got good lighting and your sound is okay, and you can get all of those from a smartphone, if you have one, I filmed on a Mm. smartphone for the first six months, then that's fine. And I think if you're being, as I said, real, not saying you have to spill your guts online, not that, but Mm. if you're not putting on a persona, people connect with that. I would say more quickly than a really swish professional video that feels more like TV. People come to YouTube because it's not like TV. Mm. So yes, I think I had 1,500 subscribers within the first month, which was a lot for YouTube. But Mm. because 
I had a blog and Twitter and people came. Sure. So I already had mm. the platforms. And then after that, the growth slowed down. So I'm at 60,000 now. And I would say with the disheartening bit, it's like with writing, mm. it doesn't go away. I think people always think if you get to a certain stage, then the worries you had before, the anxiety about writing, about not being good yeah. enough will go away and they don't. I would say sometimes they get worse because there is that expectation of you now. Yeah. And YouTube as a platform is wonderful. I love making videos on it, but I try not to spend too much time in the YouTube studio, which is the thing that you could get obsessed with. It tells you how well your videos are doing, what position they are in the last 10 that you uploaded. And if it's number one, then when you log in, there's fireworks that go off all over the page and it's rewarding (laughs) you for making the content. If it's not, everything's in red, saying your video's not doing as well as last time and all the arrows are down for watch time, for view count, for subscribers, if you haven't gained as many subscribers Mm. last month. It's trying to manipulate you into making more content because that's how it makes money. So try not to pay attention to that so much. I know that that's a very easy thing to say, um, but that would be my my primary advice. So yeah, it does take a while to grow the content, but that's both good and bad. Mm. And it's not always about numbers, is it? It's you know who you're making connections with, and um, I'm sure people will find that with writing and publishing books that. I mean, obviously, it's great if you've got thousands of people reading your book. But if one person comes to you and says, do you know what? Your book changed my life. That's so valuable. I think it's also it's about engagement. And when I say that, I don't mean Mm. the numbers. I mean, the level of engagement of people clicking on your videos because you've got an intriguing thumbnail. And then once you've been talking for a minute or two, they're like, actually, it's not very interesting. And they leave. Mm. Or are a consistent number of people clicking on your videos or reading your books because they really want to watch all of the video because they're interested in what Mm. you have to say and then leave engaging comments and there's conversations going on. That's the stuff that's important. Um, Mm. And and I mean that in all senses. To me as a person, that's what's most important. But if you're thinking about Mm. it in in an industrious kind of way, that's what Mm. everyone else cares about too. That's what brands Mm. care about. Um, they care about not just the arbitrary reach of numbers, but about the true engagement of what you're doing. I wanted to ask you about that sort of YouTube community, because you said that you, you've posted quite a lot about disability in particular. Mm. And is there is there a community of other disabled writers and readers that come across your videos and speak to you about those kind of things? I think it has been. And I think especially mm. in more recent years I think every disabled person goes on a journey of internalized ableism that kind of never ends when I was younger mm. and this is not just like off my parents my parents are lovely but I think a lot of non-disabled parents because no one in my family has my condition what you yeah. feel as though you're the same as everybody else you can do what yeah. everybody else can do and they pushed me to learn well to learn the piano I like I did grade eight piano it was ridiculous <laughs> Why. I mean, I've got that under my belt now, haven't I? I know how to play the piano, fine. But it was definitely from a, <laughs> you can do this kind of way. And yeah. you see that with lots of pushy parents anyway, right? Not mm. saying that my parents are pushy. But you see those parents who send their kids to dance class and recitals mm. and all that dance moms, right? We call them dance moms. Mm. Um, and I felt that pressure to assimilate, to say, yes, I can do anything and more. 
Uh, I was told when I was younger, I would have to be nicer, try harder, because otherwise people wouldn't like me, which is a ridiculous thing mm. to say to a child. But that's the mentality I grew up with. So I never said I was a disabled person um, because I was always told by non-disabled people, you're not like them, you're different. And I think a lot of non-disabled parents say that to their disabled kids, and they think it's nice. Uh, and, and I see the loving place that it comes from but it means that you have a lot of unpacking to do later in life when you realize, mm. actually, no way, I am, and that's fine. Like, disabled is not mm. a bad word. It's, it's a great word in the sense, you know, people say about sexuality, you don't have to label yourself, but labels can be really powerful. To be like, mm. actually, this is, yeah, this is who I am, and let me mm. learn more about that. Let me put myself in that box. It's just a very big box. There's lots of room, mm. you know? Um, yeah. So as I have got older... And as my health has changed as well, um, that is a label that I've used more. I think I used to think it was, the word was like a piece of pie. And if I used it, someone else couldn't have it who was more deserving. Yeah. And that's not how that works. Got you. Um, yeah. And as I have spoke, spoken more about disability and disfigurement and my experience of hospitals and having dozens of operations and everything, that mm. obviously means that then people find you who are also talking about those things and that is uplifting and wonderful and definitely not something I had as a kid. Um, mm. There are organisations for the condition that I have called uh, the National Federation for External Displeasure and they have a meeting every year where parents and kids meet up with each other. It's in America, so I never got to go to it. And I also thought, but isn't that kind of weird to meet people and that's the only thing you have in common with them, at least initially, you know, that we look a bit the same. Mm. I also, I'm not sure I need that. But it is lovely to have that space to talk with people who just immediately understand, like come in at your level of understanding about trauma, disability, health, ableism. And that's lovely. So yeah, I have really enjoyed that. And I definitely, at least I hope, I hope, in publishing, there is more of a movement towards disability-owned voices books, and that's something that I've been very vocal about. It's something I go into publishing houses and talk about because mm. um, I don't think it's something that's, that's thought about enough. I do think writers should write about anything, but yeah. I do think that non-owned voices stuff gets prioritised. In my experience, because publishers are uncomfortable talking about disability with disabled people so they'd rather yeah. have that filter uh, and feel like oh well we've ticked that box with somebody else and we all feel good about yes. that right yeah yeah I feel a bit awkward saying this I don't know what oh, I'm talking about yeah. yeah um but there's some great books that have come out recently um I did an event last week with James Catchpole who's written a picture book called what happened to you about a boy called Joe who has one leg and he goes to the playground and all he wants to do is play pirates, but everyone's like, what happened to you? And he says, I don't want to answer that question, though. Um, mm -hmm. And it's about opening that conversation with parents and kids about how you don't have a right to know everything about someone that you just met in the playground. Mm -hmm. You don't have to ask that question and expect an answer. Mm -hmm. And James himself has one leg and is uh, a literary agent and he decided to write the book. And Can Bear's Ski recently came out, which is a picture book by Raymond Antrobus, who's deaf, and he's an amazing yes. poet, mm. and it's illustrated by Polly Dunbar. Um, and both author and illustrator use hearing aids, and that's very rare to see, like, a dual disabled partnership, and his mm. book's very exciting. Um, so that's just picture books. But there are there are uh, books that are coming out. I do think this is a conversation 
happening more. I just hope that conversation continues as opposed to like a tick box. We had that conversation yeah. a couple of years ago. We'd never need to have it again. Yeah. What is next for you? If you are you working on anything at the moment? What are your your current sort of writing plans? I have a book coming out in October. It's a collection of stories for kids, but older kids. So my previous picture books were three to seven. This is nine plus because we don't want to terrify mm. the young ones. It's quite a scary. Scary book. I don't want any hate mail from grandparents saying that I could cause their children to have sleep this night. Um, nine plus, but I'm hoping will appeal to teenagers and adults too. It's just that the arbitrary age ranging that we've put on it. It's more of content mm. than anything. Yeah. It's a bit scary, so not for the little ones. Um, and it's a collection of fairy tales from around the world that I have retold um ones that don't get the airtime that i think they they should uh lots of people getting baked into pies and stews and um all of that stuff it was really fun to research and try and find those Mm. tales that maybe are more popular in the cultures that they came from and the countries that they came from but um definitely are not popular here oh that's very exciting out in october you say out in october and then i also have written a new picture book which i'm not sure when that will be out uh, mm-hmm. and i'm working on a non-fiction book about disability and fairy tales as well but i think that one may be quite a long one in the making just before we finish up how did you find the past i mean i I hate to look back over the past year of lockdown and things like that, but how did you find that period for your for your writing and for your productivity? It's It's been a real mixed bag of reactions. Some people found, you know, some time to kind of really focus. Some people just said, well, that year was a write-off. How was it for you? Yeah, I, I have spoken to my various editors about this because I find it fascinating, like, who has been writing and what have you been mm. writing and how? Please tell me. Um, and the general response that I've heard from editors is that, their authors who've written lots of books for them before have not been writing. Unless they had a deadline that they had to meet, they have not. But they had lots of submissions from people who've never written before, who until last year maybe didn't have, you know, the time, maybe their commuting time. Now they're at home, maybe I'll write a book. Um, So there's definitely been a surge of new writers, which is interesting. But also a lot of people now have their kids at home, went to school, so they, their job has changed. They're now, you know, carers. practically not possible, yeah. Right. So I think there's a whole variety of reasons. But for me personally, um, I did write a book last year. I wrote the one that's coming out this year. But honestly, that's because I had a deadline and I had to write yeah. it. If I didn't already have a concept for a book, uh, I don't think I would have thought of one or been able mm. to finish it. That was easier in inverted commas to do because it was stories so they had a very clear beginning and end plus it was partly non-fiction because it was research based so there were things that I could look into and learn if it was just mm. me and my computer and my imagination <laughs> I don't think mm. much would have happened I mean I was shielding last year too so even during lock between lockdowns I didn't go anywhere wow. the only place yes. I've been is my flat um and I can't lie, I went for a smear test, so that was my treat. <laughs> Big day out. It really was, you know. Like, how exciting. It's exciting. That really is going extremes, isn't it, from having no one around you to having someone in very close proximity. Well, also, they clearly wanted to do the process very quickly because of COVID, and I'm like, God, can't we stay in chat? Like, this is great. Yeah, let's have a chat. <laughs> this is great. It's, it's 
done weird things to my brain. Yeah, I've been so grateful for having YouTube this past year and having that mm. communication and creativity. I think any creativity that I've had has gone into the visual side yeah. of stuff and not so much my writing, but I really don't care. Like I like yeah. said, like it's a write-off, it's fine. I changed my job to do more editing of other people's work, taking on more mm-hmm. freelance work. So I was still, ha- I still had my job. It was just, mm. I, I deliberately made it less creative because my brain was yeah. not there. And that's fine. That's fine. Yeah. It, yeah. I think it is all about accepting that it was a very, very strange period of time. Oh, forgive that, yourself, you know. You've got to forgive yeah. yourself. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much. It's been a fantastic chat. If people want to find you online, we've been talking about your YouTube a lot. Where do they find you? They can find me anywhere with the username Jen V Campbell. That's a V for Victoria. They can find me on Twitter, Instagram and YouTube at that username. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much and uh, enjoy the rest of your day in your lovely spring dungarees. Thank you. Thank you for listening and many thanks to Jen for coming on the show. If you have questions or want to get in touch, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Writers Centre. Check out our Facebook page and over on our website at nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk. You can find out everything we're doing and sign up to our newsletter. And don't forget the competition to win the Desmond Elliott Prize books and get some money for your local bookshop. Full details about that are over on the website blog. As a UK registered charity, we rely on the generosity of our supporters to make our work possible. Please consider making a donation today by heading over to the National Centre for Writing website and hitting support us in the top right hand corner. Please do rate, review and follow the podcast and tell all your friends about it, because the more people that listen to it, the more we can help writers all over the world. Thanks again. Keep writing and we'll catch you on the next episode.